Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Uh, good evening, friends. Uh, today's reading is from Acts uh, 2, verses 1 to 4. Um, so I'm just going to turn to it and give you a moment to do so. Um, and then there's also another region, reading from Ephesians 5 as well after that. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And then from Ephesians 5, verse 15 onwards. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father, for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. All right. Going to introduce our speaker today. <laughs> this is my husband, by the way. He always introduces me, so I thought I'd introduce him. There you are. Kind of you. Thanks, sorry. All right, shall we pray for you? Why don't you extend a hand? Why don't you extend one hand to Johnny and one hand on your heart? I'll take two, actually. <laughs> jokes, jokes. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, Holy Spirit, we, we honor your presence. We honor your presence. We will never take for granted your presence with us, Jesus. And we thank you that you want to speak to us. And I pray in the name of Jesus, you would open our hearts to receive the word, the, the whisper that you want to speak into us this evening. And I pray now for anointing upon Johnny. Lord, I pray that you would fill him with fire, that you would give him your heart for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Don't need that. I do, however, need my Bible, darling. It's just over there. Would you mind? Thanks ever so much. Good. Do you like the shark tank? <laughs> do you know, first, one of the first times I ever preached, it was uh, when we used to live in California. It was at a, a club, a nightclub called the Shark Club. So-called because there were sharks. In, uh, in yeah, True story. Yeah. We're, the permit for ours hasn't come through, but we are hopeful that next week 
We'll either have a shark in there or if, if we can't get the permit, we'll just put a drummer in there. So do, do come back next week. If you're new here, just come back next week to see what's in there. Uh, there's a letter called the Letter to Diognetus. Excuse me. Mustache hair in my mouth. Do you ever get that? Called the Letter to Diognetus. And it was discovered in the 13th century. Uh, some people think it may have been written as early as 130 AD. It's interesting to Christians, it's interesting to historians of Christianity because it says something about how Christians were perceived in the early years of Christian faith. In that time, just after the Bible was being written, maybe in the early uh, or in the Roman Empire, as Christians were facing significant opposition, but as the Jesus Revolution was continuing apace, and here are some words from that letter. Christians are indistinguishable from other people, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play the full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. To expose your child, it refers to the Roman practice of leaving a child that you may not want out in the elements to die. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a beautiful picture of the church, of ordinary Christians, people like you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus. But what's interesting about it, and particularly so as we look at this question of, well, this, this area, I suppose, of the Jesus revolution, what's interesting is that there's something so subtle and powerful about the way that Christians are to live. When Christians, when we carry the life of Jesus within our lives, when we live our faith out in simple and meaningful ways, not in the style of our dress, but in the way that we treat each other and in the way that we live, it carries weight. It is where the power of the gospel is at. It's where the power is. And one of the early church's superpowers was, to put it in biblical or in in sort of historic Christian terminology, was holiness. A simple attitude of living holy for God. 
We've been in a series over a little while, really, looking at the Jesus Revolution. The question we've really been trying to get at is, what was it that caused the kingdom to break through then, to cut through? To cut through the noise in the culture of the day into which it landed. And really, a question that's related to that is, what then would cause it to do the same today? Because we need a Jesus Revolution like never before. And we don't just need a Jesus revolution, I think, in our wider culture, although perhaps you agree with me that we do need that. But I think we need a return to the simple truths of the gospel and the simple Jesus life in the church. There is so much extra fluff that surrounds Christianity and that can lead us, I think, as as people who are intending to follow Jesus. If that's who you are tonight. I recognize there are guests and maybe folks who haven't made up their mind. But if that's who you are, there's so much fluff that detracts and distracts. And our intention here at Trinity is to simplify and get at the heart of what is required for those who want to see the difference and make the difference. And tonight, I want to speak about this superpower, the superpower of living a holy life. And it's interesting because the first thing we encounter as we read this reading from Acts is that power comes upon these disciples in a measurable way, in a way that can be seen, a way that is observable. It's observed by the crowds watching what's going on. But the initial assumption that's made about them is that the last thing that's going on there is holy living. Look at this with me. This is in uh, the text. It says... Some, however, looking at the impact, the landing of the Holy Spirit in the group, somehow, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And Peter gets up and says, look, these people, as in the disciples, are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It appears that the Holy Spirit's landed in the room and an intoxication has taken place. These disciples, if you like, are under the influence, under the influence of God. What has happened, Peter goes on to describe and to defend in front of the group of people gathered, is that these disciples have had a direct experience of God. Not kind of a a secondary experience, not somebody told them about God, not somebody passed on doctrines and dogmas, not they went to Sunday school or, and, and, you know, did some kind of a teaching, good though those things are, they had a direct experience and encounter with the living God. And that made all the difference because God's power is real power. Do you know that? God's power is real power. I know when we talk about God's power, we like to think that we're speaking about spiritual things. And whenever we say the word spiritual, what we really mean is not real. God's power is real power. When God moves in somebody's life, it makes a real difference. I've seen people healed, physically healed, through God's power. I know that it was God's power because I did the healing. And I can't heal anyone. I've seen that happen. I've seen, I I am a testimony of somebody whose mind has been rewired. How? God's power. 
Do you know, I grew up through my teens and through most of my 20s, the first half of my 20s, an anxious and fearful man. As a, as a boy, I was very nervous of new situations. Uh, I would kind of try and resist anything that was uncommon, even, even if it was kind of a new sports team or things. I pushed back from those things because I was afraid of those, probably principally afraid of rejection. I would stay. It was very much a homeboy. We used to go to a Christian conference every year, every year called New Wine. My psychologist in the room psychologized this. My dad came and my sister came with me. My mum stayed at home. I would go to the payphone. Some of you are thinking, what's that? <laughs> you used to put money in and call people. It was that. You couldn't take it with you. It was too big. I went to the payphone every evening and called my mum because I was so anxious. I got into my 20s and I began to, I got into ministry actually. God called us to California to suffer for him. And, um, and I had first opportunities to preach, and every time I was, off, I was given an opportunity to preach, in two weeks beforehand, if I got that much notice, my quality of life would just be wrecked. I was so anxious. Before I'd go on stage, I would vomit in the room behind, uh, behind the stage. I was terrified until God broke in. I had a, ser- I had a season of, of prayer, uh, healing prayer. And, and that changed everything. God's power broke into my life, and that fear went. And ever since, God has been rewiring my brain. God's power is real power. It's real power. God can change bodies. He can change minds. And, and so these disciples are under the influence, and it makes a difference. It's like they've been plugged into the mains electricity. They're intoxicated They're under the influence. But it's a strange intoxication. To borrow the language of a man called Cyril, Bishop of Alexandria in the 5th century. Historical study tonight, isn't it? Clearly I've read a book. (laughs) Cyril said this, They are not drunk in the way you might think. They are indeed drunk but with the sober intoxication that kills sin, which kills sin and gives life to the heart, and which is the opposite of physical drunkenness. Listen to this. This is so good. Drunkenness, so I've heard, makes a person forget what he knows. This kind, instead, brings understanding of things that were not formerly known. You know, this is an intoxication, but it's a strange intoxication. It is, as Cyril says, a sober intoxication. Drunkenness reduces competence. But this gift of intoxication, of sober intoxication, increases competence. There are a few things that this spirit intoxication does in a human life. When the power of God lands in a life, do you know the spirit of God makes you and I more human. I don't know if you've been out of an evening in Tan. You've been down in Market Square or wherever it is that you, fun- you, you folks go, you know, overnight. Public houses or, well, uh, those of us who are in our older years are drinking our cocoa. I'm not sure exactly what you do, but... You see, when folks drink to excess, it is not the case. When, 
it is not the case that people become more human. In the first couple of drinks, maybe you feel like you have, but there is that sense of becoming less competent, less able, less capable, less sharp, less insightful. I recognize even a sense of being less awake and aware of what God is doing in a moment. We often see that people become more aggressive, less compassionate and kind. Whereas the Spirit of God does the opposite. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, we become more awake, more alive, more joyful, more peaceful, more serene, more alert. It's as if God increases our connection with him. And as that happens, we become more human. I was in a conversation with a a friend of my son's mother, who is also a friend. Maybe I should have just said a friend. I was in a conversation with her by the football pitch yesterday watching our sons play football. And we were having a discussion. She doesn't go to church. I don't know if she's got background in faith or not. But we were kind of rehearsing the whole thing, you know. And she was saying, well, faith's great, isn't it? It provides meaning. All of the faiths provide meaning, don't they? Expecting me to sort of agree that all faiths are exactly the same, which as you know, or if you haven't uh, understood this, you will see this probably fairly regularly. That's the secular view of faith. Lump them all in a box. They're all the same. It's just about meaning making. Now, I did say to her, look, that's, it's true, isn't it? Let's call her Liz. Because that's a name, she's not going to hear this. It's not recorded. So um, that's interesting, Liz. Yes, faith is significant for making meaning. But here's what really interests me. You see, if this is true, which is to say, if this Jesus thing, this Christian thing, if it corresponds with reality, then by following Jesus, you place yourself in touch with reality. Reality as it really is. So the question of whether it's true or not really matters. Because if it's true, that makes all the difference. And the fact that it's true, one of the the fact that it's true means that it can it contains power to make us more human. And I think one of the great evidences that it is true is the meaning and the difference it makes to people who follow Jesus for a lifetime. Holiness bears fruit. Holiness is beautiful. And if you have the privilege of meeting an older saint and you see how the Spirit of God, the sober intoxication of God's Spirit, lands in a life, not just over the course of weeks or months, but decades, it is a beautiful thing. So humanity, we see that the Spirit gives us holiness. And I'm just going to define that tonight for simplicity's sake as wholeness. What we find is that when we allow God to take up more space In our lives, when we experience this sober intoxication of the Spirit, we're purified of sin. But it's not through human effort alone. I don't know if you've ever tried to break a habit. I don't know if you've ever tried to stop being anxious. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. In fact, in some ways, it makes it worse, because the more I try to do it, the more energy I'm putting into it somehow. And the further into the cycle I get, it's like that you see a car, 
in a boggy mess, in a quagmire, and the, and the inexperienced driver puts it in first and starts to rev. And deeper and deeper and deeper into the mud they go. That's not how it works. That's not how sanctification, to give it its formal title, holifying, that's not how holifying works in the kingdom. What happens is the Holy Spirit puts a winch on the front of the car, which is the human life, and begins to pull it out. That's how holiness works in the kingdom, and the Spirit of God does it for us. He cleanses us from within. The real evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, by the way, is that God himself does the work, and we find ourselves collaborating with him, and the first taste of that in your life is the desire for it. You you don't have to be here tonight and be in perfect shape. You don't have to have had the perfect week. But I tell you this, if you want to give your life increasingly to God, that is evidence that God is at work in you. That's what God does. He also also creates this beautiful bond which we might call union with God. Now this really is the source of everything. But when the Spirit comes into our lives, we find ourselves connected with God. Not a kind of transitory and a temporary thing, but a deep soul level connection, and it increases over time. You know, it gets better and better. Can, can I just tell you this? Because I've been doing this now for 25, 35, I don't know how long, following Jesus. I had a little break there for a couple of years. We'll come to that in a minute. Following Jesus gets better and better. Better and better and better, doesn't it, Jeff? Better and better and better and better and better. You know, there are ups and downs. There are, there are really, really, really difficult times. It's not all easy. Sometimes it's like God is shouting in your ear with a megaphone. And sometimes it's as if you've never heard his voice. But following Jesus is the most rewarding thing. Because we get union with God. We become one with him. You know, I could carry on and I'll just say two things really quickly. The next thing we find is we find community. Yeah, I have met the most extraordinary people through the church. I have some wonderful friends. But what I would say is the beautiful thing about it is that there is something more than just friendship. You know, I, I went to a, um, a party. I try and avoid them. But I went to one last night, and, um, and we were saying goodbye to some friends, some friends of this church, actually. And I was just observing what was going on in the room. And I was observing that in a matter of seven years, soul connections had been formed in this room. And saying goodbye, it was like Shakespeare said, you know, parting is such sweet sorrow. There was sweet sorrow in the room. I've experienced that through the Holy Spirit with other people. It's a beautiful thing. Finally, you know, this sober intoxication, it it reveals and releases character. And particularly character in suffering. I want to say this to you. Your life at some point will be shaken. You will be shaken. That's coming. 
maybe the death of a loved one, maybe a, a sickness of your own. It could even be a terminal diagnosis. It could just be a failure of some kind or other. That is coming. But you know, in the kingdom, none of that is ever wasted. The Holy Spirit uses all of that to birth Christ in you. And so what you find on the other side is that there's character. There's the gift of more of Jesus. And that means, and that feels like freedom for you. It's an amazing thing. What I'm describing tonight, what I'm trying to describe tonight, is the beauty of a holy life. Folks, there is nothing more beautiful than a life lived for Jesus, than a holy life. And the church of Jesus Christ is called to live in this kind of sober intoxication. This is what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. We had a reading from that book, but this is uh, earlier on. And uh, he says this, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's what holiness looks like. And I don't know about you, but if you look at that job description, let's keep it on the screen, for a little longer just so people can have the fullness of discouragement. I don't know about you, but if you read that and you stack your life up against that, you may not feel amazing. I certainly don't feel very good when I read that. And if I look at my story and I compare it to that, it's profoundly disquieting. You know, there are things that, I grew up in the church, I, I made a decision to follow Jesus at a, a young age, and I followed that through for many years until, honestly, I think I just ran out of steam. I had tried so hard to get everything right, and there came a point where it just became too much. You can't do it, as I proved And I gave up. You know, up until that point, I was at university when this happened. I had felt that the quality of my relationship with God depended on how well I was holding on to him. And for a couple of years there, I let go entirely. And I lived as if there was no God, or basically as if there was no God. I was still praying, journaling. So you go figure. But I lived as if None of this mattered anything. There are things that I did in that period that I deeply regret. But God has redeemed that period of my life. I came out of that period a broken young man. And I found my way to a church where I was welcomed with open arms. And God began to restore, bit by bit, piece by piece, all that was broken 
And he continues to do that. And I am still a broken man, a sinful man, just like you. But God is restoring his image in me. And I'm committed to that process. And really what I want to say tonight is that the church of Jesus Christ is at its most attractive when a community of people say together, we're committed to. We want all that he has. And we are willing to give him all of ourselves. And we're not going to judge what we think is right and wrong. We're going to give what he says is right and wrong a go. We call ourselves here, or we aspire to be the church on fire. And I think there could be a misunderstanding that what we're describing when we speak of that is a church who regularly experience high emotional encounters or whatever. That isn't it. To be a church on fire is about much more than emotion. Though I would contend it should touch the emotion every once in a while. I'm speaking about the will as much as the heart. I am also speaking about the body. The gospel of Jesus says that God acts towards us in grace and mercy. He gives us his spirit as a down payment on our future salvation in the present. But the extent to which we are enabled to walk in the light of the Spirit, sustaining the work of God through the decades, depends on how willing we are to obey the voice of our Father here and now. The gateway to sanctification, the gateway to this sober intoxication is obedience to Jesus. And the church that obeys Jesus is attractive and compelling There is no Jesus revolution without the spirit of holiness. It is a sober intoxication that I commend to you this evening. In fact, it is to sober intoxication that I call you today. The presence of Jesus is both a cause and a result of obedience to Christ. Let me close with some words from another saint, Augustine. The Holy Spirit has come to abide in you. Do not make him withdraw. Do not exclude him from your heart in any way. He is a good guest. He found you empty and he filled you. He found you hungry and he satisfied you. He found you thirsty and he has intoxicated you. May he truly intoxicate you. Would you stand with me? I'm just going to invite the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the one who fills us, the one who finds us thirsty and intoxicates us to come and move in this place. And I'm aware that Amy has uh, some stuff... uh, sense the Lord saying to share as well but before we pray into any of that can I, can I just invite invite you to open your hands perhaps if you're ready to receive from God